Welcome to the Golf Exposed Podcast. It is non-stop trash stuff. I'm supposed to be pros here. I would be barefooted, drunk, playing golf. Golf Exposed Podcast. But it wasn't talked about like it is now. We got our kicked. Where we give you the good, the bad, and the truth about golf business, betting, and stories. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed Podcast. My name is Jordan Michael Colson, here as always with CEO of Brown Golf Management and Golf Back Solutions. John Brown is back with us. John, it's been a little while since we did a show. You've been on the road, pounding the pavement, getting the word out there about Brown Golf Management, making acquisitions, getting the word out about Golf Back, really doing, really doing the work, man. How's it feel to be back in the office? It feels good. It's been a hectic travel schedule the last 30 days or so, uh, but you know, necessary in the position that I'm in and looking at different golf courses that were for sale, looking at my own golf courses for operational efficiencies. Been very busy, excited to be back and, uh, you know, kick off another show here. It's been a little bit of a hiatus for us, three or four weeks. So enjoying, you know, my time at home at nights right now, watching a little bit of the Olympics. Congrats to Xander Shoffley for taking down the gold. Super surprised Rory Sabatini shot a 61 and won the silver, but Seven-man playoff for bronze. I mean, Olympic golf's back. You know, golf's on a larger stage at the Olympics. And all, we all know rounds are up and things are headed in a great direction for our industry. Very good to hear. And in that vein, while you were gone, just doing some research and some publications that you have written and been a part of and that the NGCOA put out, and that's National Golf Course Association. And they came out with a publication. And I noticed that you actually did the forward to that publication. And I was reading it and it made me think about quite a few things. Now, I have no aspirations of ever owning a golf course. Let's put that out there. I respect those who do. It's a, it's a triumphant endeavor. However, in reading this article, I found there's a lot of crossover to things that we talk about on the show, things that you've talked about in other articles. And I think that people, whether they want to own a golf course or not, could really benefit from learning some of the – and getting in more in-depth in some of the content here. So – if it's all right with you, I'm kind of going to put you through the ringer and just kind of talk about some of the pros and cons, misconceptions that are out there about actually owning a golf course. And I think it's going to trickle down into many other facets of this business. Well, I'm excited for this topic, Jordan. Uh, we haven't talked about this whatsoever, so this will be interesting right off the cuff. The NGCOA continues to put out content, and uh, the forward I did for the article that they produced about buying a golf course uh, was something that they asked me to do because they know I'm in the marketplace. I was happy to do it. We were happy to be a sponsor for it as well uh, with Golf Back. So, but I think it lays a great framework for anyone who might be considering buying a golf course. But also, I totally agree with you. There's absolute cross over analyzing you know the potential for a facility is a great way to just pull out and extract you know how we go about that process and then look at your own operation as a golf course operator or owner and uh, examine where there might be some efficiencies so I look forward to diving into it okay so right off the bat and of course this is golf exposed baby we're not pulling any punches and we're not gonna we're gonna be operating with full transparency here given brown golf's portfolio, I would assume that you are a member of the NGCOA, but if you own a golf course, do you have to become a member? And are you in fact a member yourself? We are members of the NGCOA. You do not have to be a member. I would recommend being a member of the organization. They do uh, a lot more than just put out content, but their website, their backend functionality gives a, a great support framework for course owners. And, you know, they're a hardworking group. I think there's about 20 or 20 
two full-time employees out of their Charleston office, all working for, you know, the industry and owners. So yes, I would recommend being an owner of, of the NGC way without a doubt. In that vein, John, some of the things that are talked about in this publication are the right types of people who should or potentially should not own a golf course. So this is not a piece to advocate for becoming a member of the NGCOA or owning a golf course. We're going to try to set the record straight on that today as well. Absolutely. I think there's different clubs out there. There's varying degrees of clubs, everything from mom and pop, you know, small neighborhood club in a small town. You know, that might be doing 35, 40,000 rounds, but only, you know, making 25 to $30 per round to, you know, large resorts that are part of uh, complex, you know, hotel networks, four star hotels. And, uh, you know, they might trade for, you know, 15, 20 million dollars where a small golf course might trade for 700,000. You know, the $700,000 course could be the good one and the $20 million course could be the bad one. There's just so many different inputs uh, as to the potential of a property. So there's varying degree of owners uh, that have been successful. There's varying degree of successful people who have failed as owners. So I think there's just a, a lot of information to absorb. I think the number one thing is if you want to do it, if you want to go down this path, arm yourself with as much information as possible. Uh, number one, talk to other golf course owners and operators. Generally, folks in the industry are open to giving advice about their experience in buying golf courses. More so than anything, though, get the math right. And when I say get the math right, be ready to understand sort of what your total labor percentage compared to your total revenues, you know, should be what should your cost of goods be on merchandise, on food, on beverage, what should your departmental cost percentage be as a ratio of uh, total revenues. There's so many pinpoints uh, to make sure that you can hit to give yourself an opportunity to actually make some margin and cash flow. And we're going to get into almost all those aspects here today. But before we start, the most important question for me I got a pigskin and a Hootie and the Blowfish album that are itching for a signature. Can you get me one? Oh, I, I don't know. But I'll uh, tell you what, Darius is everywhere. You know, he's, he plays at every PGA Tour event. You know, he's from Charleston, South Carolina, where the NGCOA office is. I know he's somewhat connected to that organization. Uh, maybe I could put a word in for him. And, and the pigskin is in reference to Jaws. I mean, he's a member as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, there's seven golf courses, I think, that the Jaworski group has in the – PA, New Jersey area. So yeah, definitely some folks that have been successful in other industries in our golf industry, without a doubt. And not just those guys because they're high profile names, but in, in golf ownership between Brown Golf and one that say is in sort of some of the same markets that you're in, any competition there? Or is it more like, let's exchange information, let's all try to thrive? Well, Brown Golf has changed its thought on golf course purchases and acquisitions. When we first came as a company in January of 2011, we thought there was a lot of synergy in having multiple courses in one market, uh, using equipment between those courses, having one membership program. And as time has gone on, I've realized that's very hard to do. You, there's, you know, when you're in a market, you got to build a great business. And if you build three or four great businesses, you know, what you do is you disperse the customer base among your three or four great businesses. So is there a little bit of a competitive atmosphere within a market? Absolutely. Our focus has really been to grow grab great facilities with a lot of potential, provide 
a great experience for the golfer and then provide the inroads into the Tishi where we're owning 100% of the margin uh, that we garner through those inroads. And, and that's really been our focus. And we've gotten away from, hey, let's own multiple courses in one market and, and, and have shared expenses. Makes sense. So what's the biggest misconception about actually owning a golf course? When I hear someone who's an owner of an anything, of anything, it could be a golf course owner, it could be a gym owner, I kind of think someone who sits back and lives high on the hog or high off the hog, or th there's a hog involved somewhere. I don't know where they're living, but they're living there. That's what I think of at first. And then I realize that maybe after years of garnering success, you kind of allocate responsibilities to other people. Initially, though, that's probably not the case at all. If anything, you're probably wearing more hats than you would want to be. I think the biggest misconception is that, you know, a lot of the golf courses are owned by a singular person. You know, generally they're owned by some sort of business entity, LLC, like would happen in other industries. But perhaps there's multiple owners who might have multiple uh, ideas of what they want to get out of that operation. And then they may hire a manager to manage that facility. Uh, there's lots of variations of golf course ownership. And there's definitely working man owners where they're they are a part owner in a golf course and maybe they're the operator and they might be at a club that does two million dollars of revenue and they might you know pull a margin of seven percent which uh you know is not a tremendous number by any means you know one hundred forty thousand dollars of profit and you know that might be a very well run operation and the reality is you know maybe there's an opportunity to make more of a margin in some other industries Golf is a business you need to continue to work and watch. So you talk a lot on this show and in talking about golf back, about the core principles, which to me is kind of like the basic elements of that platform. You talk also in your forward in this publication about, you know, learning the basics. It's a recurring theme that you talk about a lot. You're kind of trying to like demystify it or simplify it. I know it's a difficult process, but to simplify the actual thought process behind it is what it seems like to me. So what are the basics when you enter this endeavor of potentially owning something? Well, I hear a lot of people that are interested in golf course purchases, but haven't really worked in the industry. You know, they get caught up with, hey, we could do this or have this impact or invest this money and we'll take the sales from 100,000 in the grill room to 400,000 in the grill room. And that all sounds well and good, but there's some basic math behind it. And I'll just lay it out for you. So if I'm looking at a food and beverage operation, right, if I look at a club that does 40% cost of goods, they're operating at 51%, you know, labor to their revenues in food and beverage, you know, they've got eight, nine, 10% of food and beverage departmental costs, and then they've got one or 2% of, of capital costs associated with their F&B operation. Well, it doesn't take long to realize you put all those percentages together and I'm operating that food and beverage operation at a loss, right? So what are the key metrics that we use? Well, just for food and beverage, for instance, you know, we want our cost of goods to be 32%. We want our labor never to be above 43%. And we want our departmental expenses to be six to 9%, which gives us some kind of margin range of potentially 9 to 19% in the food and beverage operation. And we do that in every single area. And we use key metrics in every single area. So, you know, it's great to say I want to invest X. I want to take sales from 100,000 to 400,000. But, you know, can you do that and then keep your math in line so that there's some margin there? Because the day there's not margin is the day golf assets really struggle. So for someone to understand that, like yourself, who's been in it and involved so long, it, it makes sense hearing it from you. But 
in chapter two of this publication, they go into what type of person should own a golf course. I think that's incredible that they even put that in there because that's not something I thought about. There's so many different personality types. What kind of traits or personality would an ideal course owner have? And I realize there's exceptions to every rule and there's people that you may would have never thought would be successful at it who are great at it and vice versa. So in your opinion, what type of person would be like the ideal owner? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think someone who's present, uh, which is a challenge for us at Brown Golf because we have so many facilities. Uh, so, but I think if you are going to own a singular asset, someone who's present, uh, someone that has an understanding of income statements, balance sheets, uh, how to handle capital leases, operating leases, business fundamentals as it relates to accounting and finance, uh, someone that has built a framework of training and onboarding employees, so someone who's very detail-oriented and organized, ultimately someone that is willing to work kind of outside the scope of a normal nine to five, because obviously the golf business, you know, the premium days are, you know, weekends, holidays, early mornings. Um, it's a different schedule. So uh, th- those would be the attributes I think that would make a successful owner. I think the most important though, is that you're just detail oriented and organized. And then that filters down to a lot of the different areas. In your life with what you experience, and just from your point of view, are you ever able to fully disengage and shut off? I, I know occasionally you'll take a vacation with the family and you need to do that to recharge, but is there ever a time when you're not responding to emails or you can fully just say, hey, this is my time away? Because I imagine even though you ha- allocate responsibilities to your expert staff and your team, some things just need ownership <laughs> overseeing at times. If you're going to build a successful asset, then you need to build that team where you can turn it off, leave, and trust the hands it's in. That takes time. I mean, you got to hire great people. You've got to train them. They've got to want it. You know, they've got to want to personally develop for themselves. Uh, So that's the goal, right? The goal is that, you know, you build your business so that you can leave your business, return to it, and it kept on churning. So yes, we've reached that at our facilities and many of our facilities. We've also dealt with, you know, struggling facilities, which ate up a lot more of our time. I can tell you, I spend a lot less time on the clubs with great framework that make us a lot more money than the ones that we got to continue to work on the structure and maybe aren't making us as much money. So It's something that is a challenge, uh, but that's a challenge for all businesses. What do you think is a misconception? A lot of people probably think, oh, golf course owners, these guys are loaded. These women are loaded. But there's a a serious cost involved in some way, shape, or form, whether it's financial, obviously, but time commitment, energy commitment. I mean, you are putting up a lot to embark on this in the first place. So it's not like you're just going to get an ownership stake and become rich overnight. Absolutely. And, you know, not too many businesses have at their core, their their core large expense is so heavily weighted in one area like our business. And what I mean by that is our cost to maintain an asset, you know, your golf course and your conditioning that changes literally day to day based off the weather. Right. So, you know, you could spray chemicals that might, you know, might be good for a 17 day window, or they might be good for a 10 day window, depending on the weather. Right. So it's always changing. And yet almost the majority of our expenses are associated with agronomy. So golf course maintenance and agronomy is so essential to producing a quality asset so that you could take advantage of some of the other things that 
you might do well, sales and marketing, you know, T-sheet management, uh, driving direct traffic to your website. That's all well and good, but at the core, you need to have that great golf course and that great value for that player. And it's a changing asset every single day. I think superintendents do an incredible job working, especially now with what the labor pool is today, you know, in 2021, to build structure, you know, have a routine, but be able to adapt very quickly as the elements change. On that vein, you talked a little bit about the marketing and promotional side of it. At the end of the day, you need people at the course to consume the food and beverage, to play the course, whether it's members, whether it's the public, or a combination of the two. How do you walk the line of shameless self-promotion, constantly hitting people over the head with the fact that you're here and we're great and come play our course, and subtle promotion that just says, hey, we want to make you aware, but we don't want to like flood your email inbox or your news feed. Do you think about those type of things? And how does the golf course market like to be promoted to? If you're sending out a blanket market communication to a, a segment of emails, maybe not even say all of your emails uh, that you may have, then you're probably missing the mark. You're probably delivering information to, you know, 90% of that group that they're not interested you just in. Wanna, right? You're just casting a wide net, trying to get a couple guppies and as many as you can. Exactly. We don't mean to call the, them guppies. You know what I mean? Trying to cast a broad net to try to get some sort of return based on numbers only and not real valuable information. Exactly. And so, you know, what we've done with, with golf back, you know, at our Brown Golf properties is we've really gotten into a phase where we can strategically through automation, target market, based off what a customer is interested in, right? We learn about the customer through our different channels and how we collect data. And then we communicate only the information that they may have an interest in. We've seen uh, big results as it relates to that from click-through rates, open rates on emails, and just overall interaction at our clubs. And uh, it's been a difference without a doubt. And a golf course customer is no different than you or I, right? We There's certain businesses that we want to be marketed to in, in, in certain ways. And there's certain times something pops up and we're like, ugh, I don't want to see that again, right? So that's somewhere in our industry that I think lagged and, you know, our product at Golf Back has really closed that gap. You really teed me up well there. <laughs> I think sometimes with promotions, you could literally send out, let's just for round math, send out a hundred emails offering people a free hundred dollar bill and half the people aren't even going to notice it or read it because they're so fed up with just getting promotions. And other people will be like, this is fantastic. I want to know everything you guys are doing. So I think it's just, like you said, they're no different than any other market. I think it's just part of the game in that in that situation. And we need to be as intelligent as other industries when it comes to how we market to our customers. One, we need to know who they are. Two, we need to collect you know all of their data. Then we need to target market through automation, not manual emails that our team needs to think about. And we need to keep loyalty and re-engagement at its highest levels with our customers. So then I would venture to say, from my perspective, that the golf course consumer, for lack of better terms, has never been more valuable, more catered to, and more diplomatically handled than ever before. Yeah, we're probably sending out more promotions to them, but we're really giving them every promotion we send to them is directly what we think that they want and offering something of value, whether it's a discount, whether it's a way to re-engage, a daily steal promotion, things of that nature. I would say they're more respected now than they ever were. You need to give, you know, nine times out of 10 when you communicate, you need to be giving some value and maybe one time out of 10, you can ask for something in return, right? So that's our strategy when we communicate with our customers. And I think it's the right way to communicate. 
All right. So what are the main revenue streams at, at any golf course? I hear you talk a lot about green and cart fees, obviously food and beverage. I know there's a lot of golf instructions that goes on. There's so many different ways, but what are some of the key revenue streams that are universal for all courses? Greens fees, cart fees, you have range fees. Uh, you may be at a club that uh, does a lot of rental business, rental club fees, could have some locker fees. Uh, you're going to have uh, merchandise, which obviously there's margin associated with merchandise. You're going to have food and beverage, which there's margin associated with food and beverage. And there's a bunch of different other revenue streams. But I think the most important thing is, you know, not all dollars that are made at a golf course are created equal. And, you know, so many times I'll go into a club that is for sale or maybe we're looking at it for management and I'll hear how underperforming their restaurant is, you know, and that they could easily do double the business. Yet I look on their, their T-sheet, right, and their afternoon is completely wide open, right? So do you think it's easier to go out and secure a foursome that's paying $50 per person to play around a golf or your golf course or to do, you know, a $1,000 food and beverage event, right? Because they make, they net about the same amount of money. So would you rather do 50, you know, plates at $20 a head and all the logistics associated with that so you could do a food and beverage event? So maybe you do a 20% margin and make $200? Or would you rather figure out how to get an extra foursome on your golf course that you're already paying for, the costs don't change on your end, and make $200, right? So a dollar in golf, membership dues, greens fees, cart fees, range revenues, that flows to your bottom line. And a dollar in some other areas, merchandise, food and beverage does not. So we really value an allocation of higher golf revenues when we're analyzing a golf course. So if you're looking at total revenues of a golf course, if you see a golf course that has 70% of their revenues and golf revenues, you know, that's something that becomes very appealing to us. There's a lot to consider here. <laughs> There's a lot going on. All right. So we can, can a course feasibly take a loss in one of those revenue streams? Because it's so hard to quantify like how, okay, a restaurant's at a loss, but you know, the people who are coming love it, for example, and they're still playing a lot of golf. So can you take a loss in one of the revenue streams and ultimately make it up somewhere else and be okay? Or are you always striving to say like, we got to get everything back in the black? You're always striving to get everything back in the black, but there are uh, strategies associated with uh, giving great value in a different area because you know it's going to promote That's maybe a, a larger revenue stream that you can make in, in your golf if course. If your restaurant's look, can you say, hey, $5 burger and a beer for the next month during these times and come play nine holes or whatever during that time? This country is littered with golf courses that have food and beverage spaces that have attempted to be restaurants, you know? Okay. And the reality for me, whenever I look at uh, golf course operations, is food and beverage is there to support and round out the experience for the golfer. And that's how you uh, achieve your maximum average dollar per round. I think a great example of what you're talking about is, would it make sense to, to spend $150,000 in a grill room that does, you know, $250,000 a year in revenues because you might be able to drive those revenues to $300,000, you know, meaning your margin, if you made 20% on the extra 50,000 bucks, you know, it's, it's fairly minimal and the return on that investment would take way longer than anybody would ever spend? Probably not when you just run the numbers out. But if you're thinking, how do I improve my ability to charge more for my golf course? I need to elevate the 
restaurant experience because we're offering great conditioning and value and our layouts of high quality and our experience lacks in food and beverage, well, then that $150,000 might start to make a lot of sense if you can grab four or five or six more dollars per round because you've rounded out the experience. And there's always that perception too. Nowadays, especially people are Googling things, going to your website. If they see a very fancy looking restaurant or grill room, they would be like, oh, that place looks great. I got to go play there. I got to go join there. I mean, so there's that. And that's really hard to put down to nuts and bolts and quantify. But I mean, there is that sort of wow factor too. I also think from a standpoint of golf course owners and operators, a lot of times there's this view of we need to bring, you know, outside folks in, outside folks into our food and beverage space. And the reality is the most captive audience you're ever going to have is that golfer that's teeing off at 8, 808, 816, 824. So what you really need to focus on is how do I maximize my opportunities to promote food and beverage purchases with that group first. You know, that's where you really need to focus. So many times I see the focus, you know, shifted to outside folks and we're not capitalizing on the folks that are right there and captive with us. So, you know, the idea of rounding out the golf experience is all part of the same strategy of how do we make sure we maximize those folks that are captive audience at our golf course. Let's talk quickly about staffing for what you're willing to divulge here. How important is it? Let's just talk like grassroots level even the people that you're talking about in the restaurant or, or the first person they see when they walk up to the counter to, you know, either rent their clubs or book their tea time in person or whoever they talk to on the phone, things of that nature. How important is it to hire the right people and just the people that are willing to be people persons, for lack of better terms, and just establish those relationships on the club level? Well, I think the first thing that you need to do is you need to understand the market compensation for the positions you're trying to hire, especially if you're evaluating either your own golf course or a golf course you might want to purchase, because it's going to give you an idea of what your labor number might look like. And the NGCOA puts out every five years a compensation report. It's very detailed. It has every position. It breaks compensation out between public and private courses, nine holes, 18 holes, 27, 36 hole courses geographically. It's the Bible for us as far as, you know, what we're going to promote as far as compensation related to the positions that we're looking to hire. Like any business, hiring the right people that are that care and are committed is essential. Uh, but you got to start with actually posting a job at a salary range that makes sense. And that range changes, and you need to keep yourself updated and understanding what that number looks like. The NGCOA compensation report is the most thorough report out there that any owner-operator uh, or potential owner-operator can look at to give themselves an idea of what they might need to pay to hire great talent. Where can people find that? I, you have to be a member of the NGCOA, and once you're a member of the NGCOA, then you have access to that report. Uh, Jay Anderson is uh, in charge of memberships. He's the one who promotes and distributes the report. You have an incredible acumen for understanding data and establishing that in your businesses. So you can run all the numbers you want. Sometimes there's just intangibles. We know this. How do you know if a staff member, if a promotion, if a social media campaign, any of it, how do you ultimately end at the end of the day know it's effective or worth the cost that it takes to make it happen? We have mechanisms for tracking, you know, all of our strategies related to revenue growth, sales and marketing. Uh, you know, we produce a report at the end of the month, which shows very detailed information about what happened on the site level, but what also happened with your marketing tools. So we track all of that. I think it's essential. Um, you know, the industry has changed. What, what, what used to be, hey, is that a busy road beside our golf course? You know, that's the front door to future customers. You know, that road is now online, right? So you got to figure out how you're going to take, 
advantage of your opportunity, which it does exist, of how you can pull more customers who potentially are looking for golf options or food and beverage options online? How can you point them in your direction? We have strategies for that. I think it's essential, number one, that you promote all direct traffic to your golf course website, meaning don't give customers the opportunities to book in a third party, which maybe isn't marketing to your customer the way uh, that you would. And uh, listen, it's vitally important to the future growth and development of your business for you to own uh, your data, that direct marketing relationship, and then track all aspects. In your opinion, I want to go by the entry level, and then I want to go, say, let's just say 10 years down the line. How hands-on should an owner be, in your opinion, at the embryonic stages, and then let's just say 10 years later when there's things established? Can they be too involved? Does that micromanagement sometimes irritate people that you've said, hey, I trust you, I'm paying you to do this, but now I'm also looking over your shoulder all the time? It depends on their knowledge base and their desire to be involved. You know, there's golf course owners that do not want to be involved whatsoever, want to hire a quality management firm and rely on them to produce uh, a performing asset for them. So it really depends on the personality. At the embryonic stage, I think it's important that you have an expert exhaustively involved. I will say that. So we talked a little bit about where people can obtain some resources to learn more. That's, of course, being part of the NGCOA. We'll look into that. But I can't tell you how many times a week on LinkedIn or something, somebody wants something from you. And they kind of try to go through me now because I think they see brown golf on my profile. You seem to be pretty open, as open as anyone I've seen who's in your position to actually try to help people along the way and answer questions. Is that just because you feel that that's essential to, to give back? Or is that just like, hey, the more we all know things, the better our industry th- thrives overall? It's the latter. I think the, the industry as a whole is is something I'm passionate about. And anyone who's uh, who is interested in picking my brain, I'm, I'm available. So, uh, you know, people know that. And, you know, I do get calls from time to time. I always try to help whoever that person may be with what they're exploring with the golf course. I mean, I've told folks that would hire us for a management contract that I'm not sure they're looking at a club that might be the right buy for themselves because it's just priced, you know, well outside of, you know, what the market bears for a golf course purchase. Now, is that a smart thing to do for my business? Probably not. Probably better off just tell them to buy it. It's a great deal. And then I get some management revenue. But ultimately, if the club isn't going to succeed, something bad will happen eventually. So I'm, you know, really trying to get to a point where, you know, the market is, settling out, meaning, you know, the golf courses that are in the market are well run, performing, and, you know, they're ready for the long term. And there'll be some settling out, still closing of golf courses uh, over the next few years. But eventually, we're going to hit that tilting point. And I think owning a golf course will be, you know, a great decision if and when you build the right business when we meet that tilting point again, which we will. John, we could talk about this all day, but I think you've given some incredible information here. Is there anything I missed that people need to know or potential owners need to know? You know, maybe look around your geographical area, you know, check how many Starbucks are around your your golf course. You know, obviously understand your population base, uh, your school system's important. You know, is it a strong school system that people will continue to move to? Ultimately, is it a golf course asset that can be maintained for a reasonable number into the future? Meaning, you know, what does the irrigation look like? You know, are is it fraught with potential large capital investments uh, that could cost you know potential owner hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars? You know all of these items need to be evaluated. If you evaluate them properly, you get a great asset. 
you build the right inroads into your website for direct traffic, you can do very well. Hey, I admire anybody who's trying to walk down this road. And what you've done with Brown Golf with the team is pretty incredible. And the fact that you're able to juggle that many in a portfolio and still have personal relationships is a testament to your te- yourself and your team. So anyone who's listening to this and they're thinking about going down that road, do your due diligence, obviously. Talk to John if you need to. But, man, um, it ain't going to be easy, but it could definitely be worth it. Absolutely. Great speaking with you today. Yeah, John. Thanks, man.